Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is part of that effort. Today, we've got Seth Levine on. Uh, he is one of the founders and leading partners over at Foundry Group, uh, and he just has played a pretty significant role as, at the firm level and also Seth individually at helping to shape uh, the venture ecosystem over the past decade. I got to know Seth way back in 2006 when I was first starting the business. I had the fortune of doing a deal alongside him, one of my first deals actually, as a VC. And he was kind enough to mentor me a little bit. Uh, he was further in his career at that point than I was. Uh, so grateful to have him on. He's since gone on to not only lead, help lead the founder group to big things, they manage over $4 billion, and they have helped to accelerate the democratization of innovation outside of Silicon Valley. Uh, but in addition to that, um, Seth is putting a lot of thought into broader socioeconomic dynamics. Uh, he's authored a book and is working on his second. And I just find him to be a fascinating person. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here we go. Seth, really glad to have you on today, buddy. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be here. So if you don't mind, let's start off uh, by just covering Foundry. I think most people know the firm. Foundry is one of the bigger names in the venture market. But, you know, I think a lot of people probably don't have a full sense of the scope of what you guys do and the history of it. Would you just do a quick overview of, of, of Foundry Group? Sure. And let, you know, just for listeners and, and viewers, the context here, I mean, you and I have known each other since almost the beginning of Foundry. Uh, we started the firm in 2006, and and uh, you and I shared an investment that we made sometime. I think it was late, may, may have been, might have been early 2008 or late 2007, but it was it was, it was right at the beginning of the firm. So you've witnessed and the whole thing. And you were day. very gracious enough to spend some extra time with the junior guy, um, which mattered. So a little bit of yeah. incidental mentorship, which was helpful. So. Um, well, I, I, even then, I could tell that you were going to do some interesting things, right? So I, I think that uh, I think that that ended up being that ended up being absolutely true. Um, so Foundry was started by uh, by me and and three other guys in two thousand, uh, really two thousand six. We raised our first fund in two thousand seven. Turned out that was a really good time to uh, to be investing in early stage companies. We were a, kind of a classic Series A uh, seed and Series A investor. Um, and we did that for a while. Our first fund was, to, actually, all of our funds were $225 million. Um, we raised a series of those funds over the course of a number of years. And then uh, in 2016, we expanded uh, sort of the scope of foundries. We started investing in other venture funds. Um, it kind of occurred to us, we'd done a little bit of that on the side, just with some personal dollars, but it occurred to us that um, there, there weren't really LPs that had been GPs. Um, and we thought it might be an interesting way to both provide um, additional returns to our investors, but also kind of create a firm that um, leveraged other, other venture firms, right? So we invest typically in seed series uh, firms. We now have 47 in the, in the platform, in the portfolio. Um, and then we look, not exclusively, but, but primarily at their portfolios uh, to make our Series A investments. So it's, it's been, I mean, it's been a wild ride, man. I mean, it's, it's certainly, we manage four point three billion dollars. It's amazing to even say that number out loud. I mean, it's just it's just crazy. That's a lot. Um, of money. Yeah, yeah, it's a business. lot of money. And it, I mean, but look, you have this at Interplay, right? You start with this sort of seed of an idea, and 
and it just starts to grow. And you know, now you have all these different companies and you're doing all of these different things across this platform that you have. And it's, it's not that dissimilar to what we've done, right? We've added things that have made sense. In a couple of cases, we've taken some things away uh, along the way, and then we've ended up with this you know, really interesting mix of assets. So for the seed managers who are going to end up listening to this, are you guys taking new uh, funds into the portfolio on the seed side? Not Should they be really. reaching out I mean, to you? Fund, the if fund they... portfolio is, is pretty, pretty built out. Um, okay. We spend... Is there a way you want people to engage if they want to start that relationship? Well, I'm happy to hear from folks, right? And, and uh, our emails are kind of all over our websites, but mine is Seth at founder.vc, so that's easy. There you um, go. So happy to, happy to hear from folks. And I mean, look, part of why Foundry never really had a vision of firm building. We never thought that we were going to, I mean, the original vision was the four of us were going to run it until we decided to not run it. Um, and then we were going to kind of shut it down. That changed a little bit when we brought some folks in to help us with the fund platform. Um, it's not totally clear. To me, what's going to happen? I mean, I was I was sharing Mark with you before we uh, we got on onto the recording that I, this is my last fund. I'm not I'm not intending on doing another one. I, you know what Foundry itself decides to do, I've I've kind of decided to kind of stay out of a little bit. But but you know that had been our original uh, idea was just shut the lights down and and you know maybe maybe that's what we end up doing. But um, but in that context, part of what we wanted to do by investing in other funds was just to kind of help promote the ecosystem and, and provide uh, sort of in a weird way, this generational transfer, but that wasn't necessarily a generational transfer within Foundry. Um, and I think that um, that was, for me, at least a large part of what drove me to be excited about the funds portfolio strategy. I mean, obviously, it's great to have kind of a network of funds that are surfacing interesting companies to invest in. But, right. but a lot of it for me was I want to I wanted to work with some up and coming emerging managers and and you know, help them be better venture capitalists. And, and, you know, hopefully 20 years after I'm done in venture, they're still making investments and, and making a positive impact. This is a really interesting concept that I think most, my intuition is most managers aren't as forward thinking about as you and I probably have been, right? Whether or not the firm and the brand transitions out with the founders of the firm or it continues as a going concern uh, after the founders. And not all firms that have wanted to do that have pulled it off very well, right? Returns have dipped, uh, there's fighting, there's all these dr dramatic dynamics. Uh, I have stepped into this with the intent of building a platform that will long outlive me uh, and not to monetize it after that. It's not about the money. It's about leaving behind an ecosystem that will keep helping entrepreneurs after I'm dead or retired, yeah. which might be the same time. Uh, so the question, uh, you know, as you've thought about kind of seeding the ecosystem, but not through the brand, I think it's, there, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Do you have thoughts on what works better or what people, how well, people should think about that decision? I think the thing that you just said that resonates the most with me is that you have a plan, right? That like you have, an, and, and I should say it differently. You have an intention. Um, and I think it really is helpful to understand what the intention is. Is the intention that the firm is going to keep going and you're going to find a way to tran transition that firm from a generational perspective? Or is the transition uh, or is the intention not to do that? Um, and right now, at this moment, Foundry is a little bit in the gray area because we, we had initially intended on never transitioning. Now it's a little bit open about whether we'll transition or not. Um, so we still have some work to do on that. I think what you just described your intention at Interplay to say, no, I, I want this to 
to live beyond me. Um, I think that that's, that affects your decision making. Now, you also said something that's really important um, that I think most firms get wrong, which is that the, um, the transfer needs to involve substantive transfer of economics. And I think where we've seen firms really fall down is where the, the founding partners try to hold on to too, many, too much of the economics because they were the founders and they believe they built the brand. And that doesn't leave enough room for the junior folks. And in fact, there are a number of funds in our portfolio, our funds portfolio, where uh, the partners left larger firms where they were not effectively transitioning, right? Because they didn't have enough economics and decided to start their own thing. And I think that that, I mean, not, not that money is always the problem. I and mean, there's, there's also plenty of other challenges with transitioning a firm. But I think that's something that a lot of firms really struggle with and, and get wrong. And frankly, very few firms um, kind of figure out that transition. I mean, venture is such a funny business, right? Because we spend all of our time telling other people how to run their businesses. But for the most part, VCs are kind of crappy at running their own business, right? I mean, both in terms of how they manage Your staff. Your words, not mine. I yeah, might have thought no, it, I can... but I didn't say it. <laughs> I'm happy to say it out loud because I think that it's just like the irony to me of, of the venture business is that, you know, VCs tend to not be great operators of their own firms. So, I, you know, I think that like taking a step back and really thinking about how you act as a manager in your own firm, uh, perhaps is, uh, I don't know, an exercise that many VCs would benefit from. I, I think the reason just to take a tangent on this for a second, why this doesn't usually manifest in the right way is a lot of VCs, in my experience, this is just kind of my observation of it never thought they really went into the business of business building. It was like, hey, we're going to raise some money and do some deals. Yes, we have to have a logo. Uh, whereas I think it, people who, have, who come at it from, hey, I'm building a business and I need to think about customer service and operations and automation and systems and personal development, you take it with a, a different lens. And we're very much in the camp of Interplay is a company happens to be a service business with two clients, two sides of the market, entrepreneurs and LPs. But we think about it very much in that regard. And then all the things you end up saying to people, you should be doing because they all apply. So it, it's this weird, it is this weird paradigm that I've noticed. Um, you guys- Well, and you said something out. important, Mark, which is that you're building a company, right? And yeah. I think that the paradigm that many VCs lack is that they're building a company or a business, right? They're building, they're thinking about it, about it more like exactly as you said, doing deals. How do I support the deals? It's transactional. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a brokerage type transactional. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think that does dovetail back to like, what are you going to plan to do with the business? If you're doing the transactional thing, yeah. Retire and shut it down. It's awesome. Train people, help people, mentor people. But it, it's very different from trying to leave something behind. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, look, it's intentional. It's hard. And I think it's, it's no different than the advice we give to our portfolio companies, right? Which is to understand your North Star. What you don't do is as important as what you do do and, and use that as a framework for making decisions. And I think, I mean, the other thing that we haven't touched on is venture is not a particularly scalable business, right? I mean, you know, when, when we started Foundry, I spent most of my time, of course, looking at new deals because I didn't have any companies that I was responsible for. And then you get three or four years in and now you've got three or four portfolio companies that you're managing. And um, you're spending a little less time looking at new things because you're, you know, you've got your existing portfolio that you, you need to manage. Well, now fast forward, whatever, 15 years that it's been, and and all of a sudden it's, you know, wow, we have, I have 
11 or 12 companies that I manage and, right, you're slammed. and, a, and, a, and a few others that I'm not on the board of that I'm also sort of in charge of. Um, and so, you know, you spend a lot less time uh, looking for new deals. And I think that that's something that we, we often sort of, we think about the business as finding the next deal. But the truth is, once you have an established platform, most of your job is how do you help companies in your existing portfolio become more successful and find a, find a way to exit eventually, right? And I think that that's something that we we often sort of misallocate time because really, and you know, we talk about this a lot inside Foundry. I mean, right now, probably ninety five percent of our time should be spent and is spent working with the existing portfolio because that's that's what we're doing. We have an existing platform and we're adding to it, but we're adding to it five, six companies a year, maybe, right? Maybe, maybe not even that quickly. Right. Yeah. You know, and we're, we're in a different game. We're a co-investor, right? We, we do not take board seats. Uh, we underwrite our own deals, but we partner with folks that we will do kind of play the, the role you're playing. So it, it's a completely different strategy. I think there's two ways to do this business. The pro- where people get in trouble is when they try to straddle both. Yeah. When they want to be the co-investor on the board seats, and then they're not deploying enough capital. Because we keep a, ha- a higher um, new deal cadence. We do 10, 8 to 12 deals a year. Yeah. And we can sustain that because we're not on boards. Right. But and you have, yeah, you have a business model. That it's like a two-by-two two in there somewhere. And people get in trouble when they're not in one bucket or the other, when they're kind of halfway yeah. in each. The other thing uh, I've noticed, Mark, is that people hold on to boards for too long. Right. I mean, I, you know, we've obviously we work with a lot of seed and series A funds and, um, I, you know, I've counseled many of them like you should have a strategy to get off of boards. And actually, we at Foundry have had a strategy to get off boards. What um, is that? How do you how should people think about getting off of boards? What's the I right mean, timing, are, the right way? I think you need to think about what your own sort of zone of expertise looks like. Um, and then also think about what your what will support your business model. And and so for many seed funds, once you're once the company is Series A and certainly Series B funded, it's time to step aside. Um, and in our case, I, I've felt like, and I've worked with companies all the way to IPO. So it's it's not that I don't have the board experience through you know through public scale businesses, but um, we've had a number of. I, I'm always looking at which boards I'm on. Um, sort of are set up in a good way without, right? And I, and I think that there's this cliche in venture, right? Like you want to be the first call, which I think is such BS, right? Like if you're the first call for everything, you have a bad board, right? That's a crappy board. If I'm the first call <laughs> for everything the CEO can think about, whether that's HR, right. sale, M&A, financing, legal, whatever, like that's that absolutely shouldn't be the case. You sh- we should have a board that has a diverse set of experiences where other people are getting phone calls, right? Not just me as the lead investor or me as a big supporting investor. And so as part of that, you know, I've looked for opportunities to step away from boards. I had this kind of funny experience. One of our companies, it's, it's really, it's done ex- extremely well. Um, and I stepped off the board at the series, I don't know, C or D, something like that. I mean, they had, and they had a bunch of big investors, Sapphire and GA had come in and OpenView and they were really active. In this case, I know the CEO really well. I've known him for 20 years. And I stepped off the board. Well, they raised another round and one of the new investors called me and basically said, hey, what's the problem with the company? Like, why would you step off the board? Mm. Um, I, I had to describe to them like, hey, I don't, 
I'm not looking for check marks on the belt or whatever, right? Like I, I'm very comfortable That's with the with thing it. though. It's on. And I basically said, look, I want to get invited. It's on an IPO trajectory and it's basically IPO right. scale already. And I, I said to the CEO, I want to get invited to the bell ringing. And he and I still have a, a monthly update call. And I'm, you know, I get all the board packets. I read them and stuff like that. But, but I didn't need to be on the board. He's got plenty of VCs and, and growth equity now on the board. And I think that's something that people kind of get wrong. Like they want to hold on to companies uh, because the, it's, I don't know, the ego stroking makes them feel good or whatever it is. And I guess I just don't feel that way. I, I, and Foundry doesn't feel that way, right? Yeah, I think you, you know what the issue is and you said it without saying it. It's not about adding value and it's not even about defending preferred share positions or decisions in a lot of cases. The governance, it's distributed. It's managed by a lot of other people that have aligned incentives. Uh, it's uh, the baseball card, right? You get to put yeah. on your LinkedIn profile the boards you're on. And I just don't give a shit about that. And yeah. I guess you and don't I either. We're, and we're in the season of it, right? Because you, you know, Midas list just came out. I didn't look at it, but I've seen on LinkedIn and Twitter and stuff like that, people posting the like, hey, I made the Midas list this year kind of thing. And, and that's the kind of mentality that contributes to sticking with companies when it's time to kind of move on and focus on other things. And I, you know, I mean, I think in general, VCs can have a, you have a sphere of influence within a business that's very, very limited, right? You choose to make the investment. There's usually a handful half a dozen moments in the entire life of a company that were really impactful, a key hire, a key product decision. Those are the, those are the things you want to be at the table for and weighing in on, right? The day-to-day -day stuff can be important. Someone needs to be there for governance. And, and obviously we do that in a lot of companies, but, but it, you don't have to be there for every company. And look, you guys are the embodiment of this, right? You're not taking board seats. And yet I am certain that you have meaningful relationships with many or all of the, the CEOs in your portfolio, and you're providing value to all of them in a we different way, right? Yeah. Depending on what they need. Yeah, yeah. We don't have to sit through the whole meeting to pick up the phone and grab coffee and work through issues. And, now, look, and honestly, uh, Mark, would, your, would your life be bad if you never went to another board meeting again? I would be perfectly happy to never go to another board meeting. No, I, I'm not a big board meeting fan. I do think that I love the moment where there's a breakthrough. Whether that's in a board meeting or any other type of event, that aha moment, that's like crack to me. I love it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But unfortunately, a lot of board meetings, you know, some months you need it, some you don't. Right. Sometimes the issue that's really at hand isn't being discussed or the management isn't aware of it or there's politics. And all of those things are really limiting factors. So we, we very much enjoy being kind of quiet consigliere and just being really there to be helpful and supportive. Um, that's kind of our, that's the role we've picked for ourselves. Now there's limitations in our model. We can't run $4.3 billion through that strategy. There's a limitation to yeah. it, but it, it suits us well. But I want to talk about you. Like we, um, look, I started in this business in 06, my first year in, uh, there was a few firms I was paying attention to and learning from. You guys were obviously one of them. Uh, you had been in the business before, right? That wasn't, Foundry wasn't your first stop. Right. Things have changed. You've been doing this, I'm guessing, for at least 20 years. What's, how has the market evolved? And I, I know that there's probably a bunch of answers to this, but one of them you wrote a book about. Do you want to, you want to talk about kind of how the market's changed and how entrepreneurship in America has changed? 
Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about it broadly. And you're right. I've been in I've been in venture for 22 years. Uh, I started in 2001, which was a interesting time to start. Um, and the venture business, by the way, has changed significantly in that period of time as well. And I think mostly for the positive, right? I'm really. It was very Silicon Valley centric when I started. We had a lot of trouble raising our first foundry fund here in Colorado, even though we had a national strategy, but people just didn't understand uh, sort of the idea of running a firm that was national, but based somewhere, I guess, other than, than the West Coast, right? New York as a market, you know, which is where you started in venture, barely existed, right? I mean, there were so few firms. Think about that. Five-ish. Yeah. Then. I mean, it's Five-ish. crazy to think about how different it is uh, today. Um, and by the way, that's one of the reasons I spent so much time in New York because I, I was I recognized that I, one I had an affinity for it and I had a good network there, but there weren't a lot of other VCs running around there. I wasn't going to go to the Valley and you know somehow make a name for myself. I felt like I wanted to go to a market that I thought was emerging. It's funny to talk about New York that way, but it felt like that in two thousand six, two thousand seven. Oh, it um, was emerging. Where there weren't as many people running around. Yeah, right. So, but. Like, let's take the broader context, because I appreciate you bringing it up. I did, uh, in fact, just over two years ago now, as we're recording this, uh, release, uh, I'm going to call it my first book, because I'm working on another one, but but right now, Ooh. my first and only book, <laughs> um, okay. that talked about some of the changes that are happening in the broader entrepreneurial landscape in the United States. And, and it's called The New Builders, um, and it describes... People that are starting businesses in, uh, today in America are, you know, are different than you think. It's certainly different than what's been covered in kind of the traditional business press. And, and frankly, a little bit different than is funded for the most part by Silicon Valley, right? And it's important to remember Silicon Valley only, only funds about 1% of companies uh, that are started in the United States. So it's obviously it's a big, it's a big dollar amount and, and these can be important companies and they can be impactful across the rest of the economy. But um, but 99% of businesses aren't taking money from venture. And, and these are the businesses you see as you walk up and down Main Street or um, you know, drive around office parks and things like that. And, and the truth is the people that are starting those businesses have changed dramatically over the last 40 years. And specifically, women and people of color, immigrants, older folks are starting more and more businesses. And, and we talk about that a lot in the book, right? Uh, four, women are four times uh, more likely to start a business than men. Uh, 64% of all female started businesses, female founded businesses are started by black women. They're the single fastest growing group of entrepreneurs. Immigrants are twice as likely to start a business as uh, someone who was born in the US. Um, but yet we don't really do a good job of allocating capital to them, right? People who have money, uh, have ca- or capital allocators, I should say, look more like you and me. Um, and that's right. a lot of what we talk about in the book, which is there, there's this gap of of capital and also of other sort of technical assistance style resources, mentorship and the same um, to these businesses. And, and, and the result has been that um, actually the rate of entrepreneurship in the U.S. has been declining pretty precipitously over the last 40, but in particular last like 15 years or so. Big bump after COVID. So maybe maybe we're bouncing out of it. Nothing like a recession to encourage people to start businesses. Uh, we also sent a lot of money to a lot of people, and I think that that's helped um, free people up and, and enable them to start their business. Um, but but we sort of sound the alarm in the book about you know maybe rethinking the ways in which we are uh, uh, channeling capital to uh, these new builder businesses, which I think is really important, right? I mean, we need this dynamism in our economy and this vibrancy in order to stay stay a, a, a strong economy, right? I mean, with small businesses. Oh, businesses in their first and second year account for more than 100% of the job growth in the United States on a net basis. 
Um, and that, that includes venture funded companies too. Um, and you know, the, the truth is for small businesses, um, they comprise something like uh, 50% of employment in the United States, 40% of us GDP. It's a big economic driver, but we don't talk about it as much because they don't have lobbyists. They don't, you know, they're sort of not in the mainstream popular culture. We really like to talk about kind of the high growth, you know, unicorns, as we call them in Silicon Valley, companies that have the potential to be worth a billion dollars or more. Um, but in the new builders, we talk about maybe the, the economy as a whole needs whatever for unicorns, but we need a bunch of camels, right? Like real actual businesses, right. not 10 animal and, and, you know, hardy kind of the workhorses of the economy. And, and I think that that's something that we sometimes miss when we glorify these kind of scale venture backed businesses, um, at the cost of smaller main street businesses that are really the backbone of our, not just our economy, but also our communities. You're talking about a, a more diverse population building, particularly in the small business side. What's driven the demographic shift? What, what unlocked it? Yeah, that's a great question. It's not totally clear. Some, some of that is lack of opportunity elsewhere, right? I mean, I think when you ask Black women, and we talked to many of them when we were doing research for the book, um, there are a lot of stories of people feeling like they kind of hit the ceiling in traditional business. Um, and as a result, are kind of forced to go do their own thing in order for their labor to be valued in the way that they think it should be valued, right? And certainly, especially in the case of Black women, we have a you know 400 year plus history in the US, obviously longer globally, of not valuing, like literally zero value, not valuing their work. Um, so there's that side of things. Um, but I think more generally that um, we've lost this sort of meritocracy in our economy. If you go back 50 years, uh, you, if you were born in the bottom 25% of wealth in the United States, you had a 25% chance of dying in the top 25%. Easy to remember because it's 25, 25, 25. Um, today, if you're born in the bottom 25%, you have a 5% chance of getting to the top 25% before you die. So we've lost this idea of economic mobility that was the American dream. I mean, literally, that's what we're describing, right? I mean, that was the American dream was no matter what your circumstances, you can make something of yourself. And I think that in part, um, these demographics starting businesses and becoming more entrepreneurial is reflective of that as the path to achieve that, right? Because we, we have such disparity in um, access to education now, both public and then college, right? We, we have vast disparities in access to other resources. And so what you're finding is um, in those pockets that, that traditionally have lacked those resources, they're taking it upon themselves to go and kind of figure it out, right? So I think that that's, I think that's what's driving. You know, I uh, heard a speaker once upon a time say, if you want to live the American dream, move to Scandinavia. Because the, the data in the U.S. does not support it anymore the same way yeah. it used to. It's, it's not zero social mobility, but it's not, it's, it's not as open of a door as it used to be, which is terrifying yeah. and sad. Well, because meritocracy has sort of gone away, right? Because there are so many structural advantages to, um, to being born wealthy, right? And being born privileged. And, and we, we used to do a better job, again, particularly like education to me is like the foundation for allowing and now people it's so to, expensive and absolutely and if we have very disparate education systems because because of the way that most places fund education through 
property taxes, right? And so that that unfortunately has created a system where wealthy areas have better schools because they have higher tax base to to support those schools. And I think, and and by the way, better private funding in in terms of the parents from the school funding it. Um, and that that unfortunately has widened the gap and and created even more uh, sort of lack of of mobility in our economy. So lots of things you, we could dig in there over, oh, <laughs> over yeah. the course of hours, right? About yeah. what we should do about it. So, yeah, I'm voting for you for king. Um, <laughs> what's the uh, What's the next book? What are you going to be writing about? Can you share anything? Well, it's a little bit about this. Actually, it's not a bad transition to it. So I, you know, I, I mean, I'm an optimist because because of my day job, right? I imagine you share that as well, right? We we it's we hard not see to be in BC. Yeah. Well, you see yeah. people with ideas and, and you, you need to be optimistic about it, right? You, you fund possibilities uh, in our day jobs. And so I'm very optimistic about overall sort of over our ability to fix some of these challenges in our economy. And one of the reasons I'm optimistic is I, I'm witnessing from my perspective, a little bit of a shift in terms of how we think about capitalism, right? And I, for those of us, for almost anyone listening to this, like we've been stuck in this, this version of capitalism that was described by Milton Friedman in 1970 in this famous essay he published in the New York Times about the premacy of shareholder value, right? The only job of a corporation is to increase value to shareholders, uh, which he wrote in this, in this article. And that's kind of been the, the doctrine for, for capitalism for the last 50 years. It's really all, certainly all I've ever known, all you, all you ever known, have ever known in your business career. And and I think we're starting to shift away from that. And when, when I say shift away, I really mean shift back, right? Because if you think about the U.S. between the years, call it 1945, you know, kind of 46, end of the war, um, and somewhere in the mid to late 70s, so you know, Friedman's ideas took a little while to get kind of populated into our, uh, into our economy, um, you know, we refer to that era as the golden age of capitalism, right? There was a much more vibrant middle class. Of course, all these folks came back from the from World War II and built, we built houses and there was the GI Bill, you know, talk about access, meritocratic access to education, right? I mean, that was a really good way to give people opportunity. And for a long time in the U.S., we had a view about uh, stakeholders, if you'll call it, if you want to call it that, but, but you know, other people um, that companies should and can watch out for. Now, I would argue these are all in the long-term best interests of both our economy and the companies. And even Friedman in his article talked about investing in people for the long-term is, is not antithetical to what he was trying to say. But I think we just perverted the Friedman doctrine in such a way that companies were just always striving for that you know next quarterly earnings report, right? Neutron Jack, how many people can you fire at GE and make those earnings instead of investing for a longer term? And I think we're starting to see kind of a shift back to that, right? And I think that that's you know the two, 2018 business roundtable declaration around uh, other stakeholders of a business is a good example of that. And frankly, the fact that almost none of those CEOs felt like they needed to go back to their boards to get approval to sign it, I think is indicative, not that they weren't serious, but that they were already shifting their business practices to reflect this. Um, and so I think we're shifting into a, uh, a, a form of capitalism that is, is a little bit more inclusive and I think ultimately will allow us to help grow the middle class a little bit more and be more thoughtful about investments for the longer term um, that are not just in 
in terms of earnings and, and share growth, right? Share price growth. So that's what we're going to write about, right? I mean, I think we're, we're still, we're deep into the interview phase of this book, uh, but we've talked to some super interesting people. Jamie Dimon was gracious enough to do an interview uh, with us. Uh, we're talking to the, Dan Shulman, who's the head of PayPal in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've spoken to a bunch of other business leaders, a bunch of other a- academics, um, the head of one of Japan's largest companies. So we're getting a lot of data in, and now we're kind of figuring out exactly how we're gonna how we're gonna write it up. I'm writing it with Elizabeth McBride, who's the same woman that I wrote uh, the New Builders with. So that's been a that's lot awesome. on my mind. Well, I look forward to reading it. Thank you for doing that work. Um, I want to ask you one thing before we jump off, because I know we're getting to time here. Uh, look. You've kind of had an interesting tour through this VC career, right? To me, you're one of the people who's done a little bit more than just show up and turn the crank and do the job. Uh, I think it's exemplified by the book you're writing, the book you've written. You're passionate about this stuff. What's informed your life perspective? What what set you on a career of social impact as a sub-narrative or part of the narrative of your venture work? Yeah, well... I'm going to give two answers. I'll give an answer and then I'll tell a story about something that sort of shaped the way that I think about the world in ways that I don't think even at the time I, I recognize. But, but in terms of the direct question you asked, like, why do I take a broad view to these things? I, you know, I think a lot of it, some of it was just my upbringing and, and sort of my parents and, and where they came from. My grandfather didn't, on my dad's side, didn't graduate from high school, let alone college. My dad has a PhD, right? I watched it, this in my own family. Um, you know, my grandfather grew up very poor. His parents were immigrants. They never spoke English. Um, I was extremely close to my grandfather. He was an entrepreneur and kind of made his own way, ended up having a really good middle-class life. And it was a good enough life to, to allow his son to go to college and then eventually to get a PhD, um, which I, I always was part of kind of our backstory. And, and, and in, in my own life, right, we were sort of in the lower middle class when I was born. And, and I watched, you know, my dad, so my dad was an academic. My mom also has a PhD, so she was an academic. Um, that was a little bit later, but, but um, I watched them kind of move out of the middle class and then in, eventually into the, in really the upper middle class, right? I mean, really did well by the time I went to college. Um, it, it totally kind of changed our life. So I've, I've experienced this sort of in one generation moving from, you know, not going to high school to being an upper middle class uh, citizen in the U.S. So that definitely informed a lot of my overall thinking. And on top of that, I went to a, a really interesting, very uh, diverse college in the Midwest. A lot of international students, um, decent domestic diversity as well, and and just people from different experiences. A lot of first gen college students, and um, and I think that shaped my thinking as well, because I, a lot of the people I know, it was not a business oriented school. I didn't, you know, most people went into academia. Um, I was the exception to some extent uh, of my classmates to go into business. And I think that that helped shape things. But, but in any event, I, I was sort of alluding this uh, to, to, to this in something that you and I had, uh, you know, talked about before. Um, but I had this experience early on in my career, which was deeply humbling. And it really kind of changed my perspective on, on sort of how to show up in the world. And, and this was, I, I was, it was 1999 and I was working for a, um, for a private company, but we were going to go public. And I was, I'd been promoted into this role where it was way above my head. I was the corporate finance half of the CFO role. We didn't have a CFO. It's amazing to me to think about that going public, but we had a chief accounting officer and we had me as 
VP of corporate finance or something like that. Um, and um, I was leading the effort to, to, uh, to, you know, go public. And so I was, you know, leading the writing of the S1, all that kind of stuff. And we're nearing the end of the process. It might've been early, early 2000 uh, at this point. And we're, we went to New York to do a big drafting session for a couple of days. And um, so I was, and I was, you know, obviously the sort of center, central person in, from our company in that effort. Um, and I was feeling really good about that. One of our investors was Texas Pacific Group. They were doing a big CEO summit and they had invited me to come talk about basically like future of technology sort of thing, right? Like, here's this younger guy I was, you know, in my late twenties and he's going to come and give this, you know, talk about it. And so, um, there were a group of us from the company in, in town and we'd been driving around in this stretch limo. And, um, so I had to, I, I needed to fly to the West coast cause they were, TBG was doing this in San Francisco. And so I left the, one of the drafting sessions and I was going to head over to, uh, to San, to the airport to go to San Francisco. And, um, I'm in the, you know, I'm, I'm in a suit because we've been with the lawyers and the bankers and all that kind of stuff. And I'm in the back of this limo by myself. And I'm, I'm in that kind of back section of a, the long limo. So I'm sort of facing forward. I have both my hands kind of stretched out. I've got my, you know, I remember it vividly. I'm, you know, crossing my legs. I'm feeling as good about myself as I possibly could. I get dropped off at uh, Newark and I go in and I look up on the board and I'm like, where's my flight to San Francisco? Um, and I can't find it. And so I, this is, this is before, you know, phones that had your tickets and things like that. So I, you know, right. dig out my itinerary and I realize, shit, I'm flying out of JFK. And Ooh. for you listeners in New York, <laughs> it's six o'clock or six 30 at night. That's two hours. You're not getting from yeah, Newark to JFK. Yeah. Anytime You're not making soon. your flight. Yeah. And so I miss my flight. I end up at some, I mean, the crappiest hotel you can think of in Newark. I get into my, and so I, I'm going to fly the next day. I'm going to miss my, my slot, if you will, but I'm, you know, I'm still committed to going to this event. And they were like, well, maybe we'll get, you know, figure out a way for you to do something small later or whatever it is. And so I, so I'm going to fly the next morning. I go to my hotel room and I'm sitting on the edge of the, I'm still got my suit on. I have, didn't even unpack. I'm just sitting on the edge of the bed. And I'm thinking like, Basically, like, I, how, one, what a contrast. Hour and a half ago, I was king of the world, sitting in the back of a stretch limo, about to go hop a first class seat to San Francisco. And now I'm sitting in this, you know, CD motel in Newark. Um, and I'm going to, you know, sleep for seven hours or six hours. And then I'm going to go get on a flight and be late. Um, and I, I vividly remember thinking, like, like, you let it get too far, essentially. Like, humility matters. Um, and I think it was a sign, right? I mean, I'm, you know, I, 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 I believe like fervently that this was the universe's sign to me to like chill the F out. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and I appreciated that. Right. I mean, in the moment I was mad, but I actually sort of came around literally sitting on the bed, came all the way back to this happened for a reason. And the reason is I need to chill out. Um, and I'm not all that. and. Um, you know, one needs to approach life with more humility, right? And that was only reinforced. We went public the essentially two days uh, before the NASDAQ hit its, its high in that period of time. And so, you know, by the time the lockups came off and all that stuff, right, the markets had fallen significantly. And, and so it was a really good prep for me for the next year plus of my life where I 
was dealing with the aftermath of sort of the internet bubble falling apart, um, you know, at this company, and then eventually went over and, and worked for uh, a Silicon Valley based venture firm. Uh, uh, it was uh, SoftBank Venture Capital. And most of what I did there was also kind of working work stuff out. And I realized that like, approaching all of that with a lot of humility was was the way to be successful at it. And I think that that was that that moment in time is what really changed my perspective on how to approach work. And I, it's, I mean, I think about it all the time and it, it absolutely affects even today how I work with companies. Terrific wisdom. Thanks for being on, Seth. Thanks for having me, Mark. This was great. All right. Well, I am very excited to read his next book. Um, he's thinking deeply about how society is evolving. Um, you know, if you take the type of topic he is covering, it's very timely for me as a person who's been reading Dalio uh, and other types of content out there. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a Harvard Business School professor, uh, Professor Rawi Abdella, uh, who's also leading the forefront of thinking in this space. Um, we are going through a, a new phase of society in American capitalism. Uh, and we are going to need a lot of people staring at it, looking at it, and trying to recalibrate how to evolve to adapt for the future. <laughs>